Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. In in my limited experience working with economic crimes here, um, if, like I said, it was, um, you know, unless there was a lot of zeros involved, typically they didn't have the the bandwidth to take on that, that investigation. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hey, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. I am really excited about this episode. I tried something a little bit different here. I'm still one interview with one person, um, but I brought on somebody with uh, no exposure really to financial services, at least not specifically. Um, so this episode, uh, we're going to be submitting it for a bunch of CE credits and we'll see how this works out. Uh, we're shooting for one uh, life insurance credit in BC. Uh, we're shooting for one life and one ANS credit in Alberta. We're looking for a Saskatchewan ethics credit. We don't get that very often, and uh, we'll see how that application goes. Uh, Manitoba life insurance credit, Ontario uh, life insurance credit, an ethics credit with Advocus or IAS, uh, financial planning credit with FP Canada, uh, compliance credit with IROC, and uh, business conduct credit with MFDA. So hopefully we get all of those in. Um, I'm going to roll into the interview momentarily here. I'll have a few closing comments afterwards. Um, The object for today, this is my pocket knife slash pocket tool. It'll show up in the quiz as a pocket tool. And uh, it's my little uh, folding Leatherman. um, And I've always had something like this. this is the, uh, I think this is called the Leatherman Wingman. There we go. Um, I actually got this for free at an advocacy event a few years ago. So nice gift. That's a good uh, giveaway. Um, but uh, anyways, I always carry something like that with me. Um, I've done uh, a lot of stuff with my Leatherman over the years, uh, notably cut off the end of my, just the very, very tip of my thumb in France a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, yeah always good to have something like that. I used to carry one uh, as a matter of course, but uh, now you have so many places you can't carry a pocket knife, such as an airport. So I have to really make a conscious thought to put that in my pocket. Okay, um, let's hear from uh, Paul then. Super interesting interview, uh, fascinating background, lots of great stories here. And uh, like I said, I'll have a few comments afterwards. I'm here today with Paul Rubner. Paul is a former Calgary City police officer, and I met Paul recently at the uh, Center to End All Sexual Sexual Exploitation 25th Anniversary. Great to see you get the um, Cease Man of the Year Award there, Paul. Always, uh, I love to see that award get handed out because it just shows people are doing great things. And of course, you got this because of your work, um, I think, mostly post your police career with the I'm Worth It Now is the organization you're um, representing here today. Can you chat a little bit about yourself and about I Win or I'm Worth It Now? Well, thanks very much. Yeah, that uh, that award was certainly unexpected, um, um, but certainly appreciated. Yeah, I actually started working with um, I'm Worth or I Win uh, before I retired. In fact, uh, I'm one of the co-founders of, of that organization. Um, and how it all came about, uh, just as a bit of background, uh, I was doing... A series of presentations on 
sexual exploitation and trafficking in the Calgary area. And the other co-founder, Kristen, was actually at two of those presentations. Uh, and after the second presentation, she approached me and, and um, pitched this idea. A friend of hers uh, was part of a similar program in Florida, and she asked me if I thought there would be um, any opportunity to start up a similar program in Calgary. Um, I, I thought immediately, yeah, there was, a, there was a need because in addition to my work um, with the Calgary Police Service, one of my duties was um, working with outreach organizations whose sole function was to work with traffic and exploited women, much like CEASE in Edmonton. There was an organization here in Calgary that's very analog analogous to them. And so that was my thought is that uh, a program that Kristen was describing um, would work very well in helping support um, this program in Calgary. And that's really the genesis of, of IWIN. Um, we started off um, on a very small scale, providing, um, I think, 12 backpacks initially for, for RESET, the RESET Society of Calgary. Um, and over, and this was in 2019. And in the intervening years, we've now grown to uh, where we're supporting not only Reset in Calgary, but CEASE in Edmonton and a program in uh, Saskatoon as well. Um, so it, it's growing quickly. We're trying to uh, uh, kind of manage the growth so that we don't overextend ourselves uh, because that's, that's a real risk because um, there is a definite need for this sort of program. And um, we want to make sure that whatever growth we do is, is thoughtful and meaningful um, so that we can continue um, with the level of support that we currently enjoy. And as I understand it, sort of at iWIN, you would put together a backpack of essential supplies. You've got somebody who's leaving a vulnerable situation or in a vulnerable situation, maybe still. They have this need for, I assume, toiletries and change of clothes. What other kind of stuff would you have in there, Paul? What happens? Yeah, so, so what happens is we don't deal with individuals ourselves at IWIN. What we do is we work directly with um, those three organizations, Reset, Cease, and Hope Restored in Saskatoon. So these are organizations that when a woman comes to their program with the intent of exiting an exploitive lifestyle, often they only show up with the clothes on their back. Um, you know, maybe they've lived in those, those clothes for two, three, four days a week, perhaps. So what's, what's in the backpack is... Um, some very thoughtful and intentional articles. And I'll, I'll speak to that in a minute, but yes, it's a, it's a change of clothes. So like, you know, yoga pants, there's um, a t-shirt, a hoodie, clean underwear, socks, all the toiletries, shampoo, conditioner, hairbrush, toothbrush, all those sorts of things, floss, um, lotions. Uh, and they're all, one of the important things that we that we were very cognizant of initially was that all of the products that we wanted to include in the um, in these backpacks were had the potential to be triggering for the women that were receiving them. And by that, I mean a lot of organizations would sometimes just you know trying to do some street outreach, and they would hand out you know smaller parcels of, of items on the street, perhaps, and it'd be a sham, uh, hotel size shampoo, travel size um, articles. And it triggers the women because those are found in hotels where typically they're either trafficked or exploited. So we were very intentional in that, is that, you know, none of the, uh, none of the labeling on any of the pro products, um, hopefully, um, are at risk of triggering. Um, all the lotions and shampoos and all those things are full size, um, nothing to sort of trigger any memories of, of negative experiences that they may have um, uh, encountered. I would have never thought of that. And in fact, I've been you know, guilty of that myself. I know, uh, you know my wife and I have made a habit of gathering like the hotel sample sizes and sees has a little bin at the front when you go in right. there and I'm always filling that bin. So, you know, that's, a, that's a good, um, just a, a thing to be aware of that I never would have thought about myself. You know so. what? And and you're like most of the most of the general population, and you didn't think of that because you haven't worked 
thankfully, probably with this population. And, you know, that's a, that's a piece of information that I had because, um, you know, for better or worse for 11 years, that's, that was the last 11 years of my career with the CPS was working with traffic and exploited women. And, and it's something that I probably wouldn't have thought of before I started this work as well. So it's just something that, um, yeah, little things like that, that without that experience, people have no reason to think about. Yeah, certainly when I see the CEASE participants, they're well after any of that uh, that right. stuff would be so prevalent. But yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned, so you worked about the last, I think, third or so, maybe half your career with VICE. Um, mm-hmm. And this is maybe not, uh, not not a financial question directly, but I think it's, it's interesting, obviously. Um, what do you think our listeners would find most interesting or um, surprising maybe about, you know, you just gave a good example about folks um, leaving the sex trade. What most people that I spoke with when I was doing my education pieces probably found more interesting or surprising, I guess, was that about 98% of the women I dealt with were Canadian citizens. Um, virtually every woman, every traffic, sex traffic woman, and I only dealt with sex trafficking. I didn't do any labor trafficking investigations at all, but every sex trafficking um almost every sex trafficking survivor that I worked with um, was born and raised in Canada. And a lot of people have these misconceptions that it happens to somebody else. That it's, you know, usually people coming in being moved in from another country. And that certainly does happen. Don't get me wrong, but in Calgary, in Alberta, that's typically not what we see. Um, And the stats that we see in Calgary are very similar to what's being seen in Edmonton and other parts of, of the province in that the women that are being trafficked are, born and raised here. There are mothers, our sisters, our aunts. Um, and that usually takes most people by surprise. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a good point. And, you know, again, I'm um, just from my experience, you see, like, I, I get to deal with the cease participants mostly, you know, well after and yeah, they, they do seem, you know, no different than anybody yeah. else that I might run into in my day to day life. And you know, other than whatever's happened in their history, right? Well, and, and, that's, and that's, that's a good point because, uh, and it's interesting, the words that you chose that they, they seem like everybody else because they are, um, you know, you often hear people say, well, geez, he didn't, he didn't look like a, a pimp or he didn't look like a bank robber. Well, I challenge anybody to tell me what a, what a pimp or a bank robber actually looks like because they could be anybody. And it's the same thing with our survivors, right? They come from all walks of life. Another misconception is that, you know, it's, um, you know, the, the women that, that we encounter and work with are f- sort of from, you know, sort of the other side of the tracks. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth because vulnerability is not linked to socioeconomic status. You can be a little bit more vulnerable if you're, if you are economically disadvantaged, but I've worked with, I've worked with women, you know, with university degrees, you know, gainfully employed in their chosen field. I've worked with women whose, you know, fathers are lawyers and mothers are master's degree social workers. And I've worked with women who come from, you know, single parent homes where addiction was an issue as well. And everybody on that, on that spectrum, right? So there is sort of no typical survivor, just like there's no typical offender. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to come back to that typical offender thing a little bit later on here. Um, and we just had, it's now about a month ago or so, probably be two months by the time this goes live, we just had this fairly high-profile story in Edmonton of this 13-year-old girl who was thankfully found in Portland, having been trafficked across the border. Um, you know, you just talked about sort of in Canada, staying in Canada. How typical is that kind of thing? Is this story something we should be surprised at? In my experience, it's rare. Um, I have investigated cases in, or at least one case in Calgary, where an offender came to Calgary from California um, under similar circumstances, but committed his offenses in Canada versus you know, transporting the youth in that case back across the border. Um, so yeah, to your point, that circumstance, I think, is the exception rather than the rule when we're talking about exploited youth um, and even, even exploited adults for the most part, at least again, most of my, most of my experience is in Calgary, certainly Alberta, but I, I do have, um, I, I, I do have, or have had connections with um, jurisdictions across the country. So I'm, I'm basing some of that on some of those, uh, some of those cross, cross provincial or interprovincial files as well. 
Perfect. Now we're going to move on to the financial stuff here. And I want to just give the caveat, you are in no way a representative of FinTrack. You're not like this is you were an on the ground police officer. That's right. And I'm I'm wondering, though, about what you saw in terms of dealing with FinTrack or how you interacted with them. Is there anything you can tell us to give us a little background here? Um, well, as I mentioned earlier, I, I dealt with FinTrack tangentially. Um, I heard about it very early on in my career in Vice. And, you know, occasionally we would get presentations from different groups about um, the abilities of FinTrack. Um, I was on the receiving end of regular information packets from FinTrack. And I was, I was astonished at the amount of um, information um, that was actually contained in these, all the banking information and, and things like that, um, you know, all sort of encapsulated in one, one neat little package, um, you know, individual by individual. So uh, if, could, if I'm I could, suspected of having done something untoward and FinTrack gets involved, you're going to see all of my bank and credit card transactions going back for years and years. Like, is that level of detail? Well, from what from what I could see, and again, I'm not a I'm not a financial um, expert at all, and honestly, some of the information that was contained meant nothing to me because I wasn't I've never been really formally trained in in financial investigations. But what I could see, and as I understand it, and you probably have maybe more information on this whole process, but if a banking institution flags a customer's account based on certain parameters, you know, they, they check a certain number of boxes and that raises, a, you know, the proper flags. Um, they will then collect that account information and send it off perhaps to the law enforcement of jurisdiction. Um, and that's what I would get. Um, so it would be information on an individual. And from what I could tell and what I could remember, and forgive me, it's probably been several years since I've looked at a FinTrack report. Um, it was banking information over, over a finite period of time. So the, the FinTrack investigator sort of highlighted the transactions of concern. And then as an investigator, then it would have been up to me to uh, use that information in conjunction with um, an investigation that I might have been working on. So, so for example, if I had a survivor who said that uh, she, was, she was working in Calgary and Lac La Biche and Fort McMurray on, on certain dates and on each of those dates, she deposited X amount of dollars into a bank account that wasn't hers, but it might have been, might have been her pimps. Now, if FinTrack could, could find that bank account and match up those deposits that corroborate what the survivor tells me, then I would be able to use that as part of the prosecution to support um, the charge. Um, so that's, that's where the FinTrack information becomes very very useful. The problem is in certainly a, a sex trafficking or um, an exploitation file, we don't get to court unless the survivor wants to participate in a, in a criminal proceeding. And that is generally the biggest hurdle that I as an investigator had to overcome. Um, I mean, we could talk about corroboration and, and things of that, that afterwards, but the biggest hurdle was First of all, getting the survivor to um, have some faith in the justice system, have some faith in law enforcement, and willingly undergo a process that was going to force her to recount her story at least three times before we get this uh, resolved. Yeah, I, I want to circle back just to a, a quick comment you made there. You'd say, and I, I've heard this before. I think this is something that shows up in, I don't know if you're aware of, uh, is it Tamiya's project? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, Tamiya and Aggie. Yeah, Tamiya and Aggie. Yeah. Okay, so she talks about this where, you know, that idea of depositing money to somebody else's account, is that done using a debit card or is that like at an ATM or is that done in person at the bank? What's the... Yeah, but, what's the <laughs> In, in my experience, based on surveillance that I did during many of our investigations, it's generally done, done at ATM, which helps us um, with corroboration because then we can get records from the ATM um, because, you know, there's cameras, et cetera. So, you know, and that's where we, like I said, we often didn't struggle with corroborating a lot of these stories 
the biggest struggle was just getting the uh, distrust of the of the justice system overcome. Right, and uh, again, reliving that trauma and all that That's goes. Yeah. I, I can, yeah. I, I, I always I describe it to the women. I always describe it to the women as uh, as picking off the scabs. Yeah, and, and it would heal it's, afterwards, right? But it's going to be painful during the process. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can see that. Like I. I don't know what I would do in that situation, whether I'd be willing to go back and, or whether you just want to move on, right? And be done with it. Well, and I Exactly. And, you know, for, for not only that reason, um, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've grown a lot um, in being able to work with a lot of those survivors because I've learned a lot from them, um, not the least of which is resilience because, you know, what some of them have gone through and the mere fact that they're still here in front of us is astonishing. Um, so, you know, it, it was always getting, getting a prosecution was usually fairly low on my list of priorities, making sure that, that the survivor was, was healthy and on the road to recovery was always at the top of the list. So this idea of uh, getting a prosecution here. So, you know, I talked about getting evidence and corroborating and so forth. Uh, just offline before we started recording here, we were chatting a little bit about the overall difficulty in Canada of prosecuting financial crimes. Can you, can you talk a little bit about um, where there's uh, maybe some gaps here or why this doesn't happen as much as maybe you know folks might like to see my personal opinion and again i'm no expert um i think there's a couple of issues at play first of all most police agencies are strapped for manpower so they don't have a lot of people to devote to um, financial investigations which from what i understand are extremely complex and time consuming um secondly i'm not sure that there's a great deal of training available such that it would be available to a wider audience within a police service because it is such a specialized area of investigation. So I don't think even, um, you know, getting, getting it out on a, on a widespread scale to uh, street level constables probably wouldn't be very effective just because they wouldn't have the time to follow up or the in-depth knowledge that a subject matter expert really would have to have in order to, um, unravel all those layers right and beyond that or i guess in addition to that and again just my my feeling is that there's probably not a great deal of experience within the crown prosecution service in terms of prosecuting financial crimes just because of their complexity um i i don't know how much case law there is i i'm sure that there's been some very uh large in terms of monetary value prosecutions that have taken place in Canada. Um, and I think that's part of the other thing is that because of the sheer volume of, of potential investigations and the, the limited manpower that most agencies, whether it's police agencies or prosecution um, agencies have, they're limiting themselves to, you know, the larger value um, crimes. You know, so unless you're talking maybe $500,000 and up, they're probably not going to have the inclination to look at it just because of, um, you know, the, 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 the cost-benefit analysis, I guess, in mounting a prosecution. Yeah, and it's tough because, you know, we're looking at what's happening with, you know, Fortress, um, with the mortgage situation in Ontario right now, where, you know, it looks like there was some untoward stuff done a lot of it probably and the number of people that seem likely to get prosecuted out of this seems very low compared to the number of people who probably knew something was not being done above board so and that's a high profile one like that's not right. yeah so yeah. yeah i i agree with you i think that th those are two really good explanations my my third here is going to be that uh, anybody who's serious about this kind of thing um you know they have a lawyer like before they start doing this stuff, right? So you're already, you know, kind of preparing yourself for, for a complex case. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's it. That's it. And so when you think about like, you know, in Edmonton here, we used to, I used to deal with the uh, economic crimes unit of the EPS and, you know, they talked about five and $10,000 
you know, check cashing schemes and, you know, blank credit card schemes and that kind of thing. And you're like, well, does anybody ever end up actually in real trouble because of that? And it sounds like probably not all that often. Not that I'm aware of. Um, in, in my limited experience working with the economic crimes here, um, it, like I said, it was, um, you know, unless there was a lot of zeros involved, typically they didn't have the, the bandwidth to take on that, that investigation. That's tough. Um, now, just going back to FinTrack getting involved here, do you, and you said, I know not an expert on the FinTrack rules, the, uh, but do you, do you ever have a sense of what actually, like, was it a teller at the bank? Was it uh, automated processes? Was it, uh, you know, an astute manager? Do you ever have a sense of what triggered FinTrack to get involved? I have a sense that it was automated processes that, that, um, you know, cash deposits over a short period of time at multiple locations, and not just multiple locations within a, within a city or a town, but, you know, let's say there's been 12 cash transact, 12 cash deposits in four cities within 10 days, that sort of thing. That makes perfect sense with what you're talking about before with the, uh, person depositing money in Edmonton, Calgary, and Lac La Biche. That's right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. This is what I always wonder about. You know, we make, uh, again, from our side, especially our in the banking world, you know, you make this big deal out of $10,000 and suspicious transactions and so forth. And I always wonder how much of it actually gets flagged, how often somebody sees something. I don't think I've ever had a student. I've dealt with, you know, five or 6,000 students over the years. And I don't think I've ever had a student tell me that they actually flagged something for FinTrack. So. Well, and, and I think that's partially because most people, um, even somebody, you know, as, as financially ignorant as I am, know about that $10,000 threshold, right? Uh, but nobody, nobody thinks that banks are tracking um, your transaction activity in, in many other ways. And it's, it's one of those methods that, that, um, that help us because they can, they can track those, like I said, those multiple deposits from multiple locations over a short period of time that, you know, raises a couple of flags and then gets a FinTrack investigator uh, looking a bit further into it. Yeah, I think that's a really good example of where FinTrack shows up in a, in a fairly concrete way. And I, again, not recognizing that that's not your area of expertise, yeah. but that's, I think that's really helpful, Paul. I think a lot of yeah. my listeners would would sort of see FinTrack as an annoyance. And here's a good example of them, you know, doing good work. Oh, and, and, and yeah, they're doing good work. And, and that was the thing because I would, like I said, I would get um, often, there, there were some weeks where I was getting two FinTrack reports a week and, and then it wouldn't, I wouldn't get any for a while. And then, um, you know, I might end up with four the next month type thing. And it's not because I requested them. It was because somebody was flagging these, flagging these events in our jurisdiction and it had some of the earmarks that they've been educated on in terms of, of potential trafficking activity. Now you said you, you sort of alluded to requesting FinTrack report. So it, it was possible for you to, to reach back into FinTrack and say, Hey, can you have a look at this person? I, I did have, yeah, I did have that ability. I did in my old life have a contact that I could a law enforcement contact within FinTrack that I could contact um, if we had a prosecution where there was, um, we needed that sort of corroboration where we could find some of those transaction records and things like that, rather than going through, as I recall now, again, I'm going back several years, uh, I think it was easier to go through FinTrack than it was to go through the banking institution themselves. Right. That, that would make sense. Um, and again, they'd have the right levers to pull and all that yeah. goes along with that. So, Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's perfect. Um, now, this might be a little bit of a stretch again. We're going back several years here, but can you think of cases where, um, you know, in in retrospect, you know, you're you're dealing with aftermath with the with the survivor or even possibly actually prosecuting, and you look at this and you say, "Wow, somebody should have picked something up here." Like FinTrack should have been involved. Um, you know, the, the financial institution failed, or do you do you recall that thought at all? No, I. Not with regard to FinTrack or banking institutions. I, you know, I, I 
did have some what I consider considered to be failures from other systems where, you know, we would do search warrants on locations and find, um, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in cash um, unexplained. And we would forward cases like that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm truncating some of the evidence that we have, but there, there was ample evidence of, of um, uh, income tax fraud, income tax evasion. Oh, you know, people living in $800,000 homes and, and claiming $50,000 of income, but we're finding tens of thousands of dollars of cash in the search warrant based on, you know, based on the work that they were, that they were doing. Now, again, this is, this was prior to some changes with um, the prostitution laws in 2014, the, you know, the Bedford decision, but we would forward those cases off to CRA and um, economic crimes and, and, of jurisdiction because sometimes they weren't always um, Alberta residents. And as far as I know, none of those cases were prosecuted um, at least by CRA or any of the other organizations. So yeah, there was some frustration there because um, you know, these people, I mean, we have to turn we have to give them, give the money back because we couldn't prove um, um, right. well, we, we could, but again, it's, there was an issue with, you know, the judiciary and things like that. But yeah, so there was some frustrations. But to your question, I don't recall anything where, where I could say, in my opinion at the time, that, you know, the bank dropped the ball or I wish Fintrack would have been, you know, a little bit more heads up. No. Yeah, it's interesting, the CRA thing, because they have recently, just in the last, I want to say, 36 months or so, um, at CRA started doing postal code audits. Right. Where they will look at, um, you know, if you're a 45 year old living in a neighborhood where the houses are all $900,000 houses and you're showing $50,000 of taxable income and everybody else on your block is showing 150, that's an audit trigger now. Okay. So yeah, yeah. that's, but that's new. That's not, uh, that's something that really they need a little bit of big data to be able to pull off. So. Right. And, and appreciate too that. I mean, we were doing those, those warrants in, you know, back in the early 2010s. And then when um, that Supreme Court decision came down in 2014, those investigations, or at least that method of investigation came to a screeching halt. So we weren't doing the search warrants anymore and finding all the cash, although I'm sure they still exist. They're technically not um, in violation of those now rescinded portions of the charter. Interesting. Okay. I, I'm not aware of that. I'll, I'll read the Bedford decision and post a link to it. So that's uh, far outside of my expertise. Um, sounds like a bit of a pain though. It, it was, it was, it was a challenge for, you know, police agencies or police, police officers in, in my area in vice across the country. Um, you know, we had to change the way we did business. Uh, it didn't affect us in Calgary too much other than the fact that we couldn't do those investigations that led us to, to the cash so that the, the people that were keeping the body houses, but essentially what the, uh, what the Supreme court said was that there were three provisions of the prostitution laws as they existed at the time that were overbroad and overreaching and infringe on charter rights. So the government of Canada rescinded those three. Um, they were given 12 months to rewrite the law and they did it in six. And that's the regime under which we're operating now. Okay. I am, when you say that, I'm aware of that, much yeah. more broadly, but I that's, yeah, the, I that's the reader's digest version. Perfect. That's a good summary, Paul. Thank you so much. Um, now I just want to um, talk about uh, suspicious transactions here. Uh, some of the things that I've seen on in my time at Cease, because you know, like I said before, I get to see the the folks at Cease um, a few months typically after they've emerged from um, you know whatever uh, they were dealing with at the at the worst moments. Um, so I'm curious if you've seen this or if these are regular patterns, but you know, one here, student loan fraud. So yeah. the one that I, I can think of a particular person at CEAS that I dealt with where her trafficker um, had her take out a student loan, $17,500, if I remember right, as your max in Alberta in one semester. Um, she enrolled in a post-secondary institution, uh, paid her tuition, dropped out within the first whatever week when there was still a 50% refund of tuition available, gets the cash back, hands it over to her trafficker. And uh, subsequently the trafficker, like there's, she has the debt, trafficker has the cash, right? Yeah. You've seen that kind sure. of thing? Yeah. Student, student loans like that, um, mortgages, car loans, bank loans. Yeah. It, it's very, very common. 
Um, and there's actually a, an organization, I'm not sure if you're aware of them, um, that has started fairly recently. And, and when I say fairly recently, the last four or five years um, in Ontario, but they're working with survivors across the country, um, Project Recover. Um, Richard Dunwoody is the one that uh, started that program. And their sole purpose is to get the lending organizations. And so far, and I don't want to jinx him here, but so far he's batting a thousand, um, has not lost, not lost in a case uh, to get the lending institution, whether it's a bank or an educational institution to forgive that loan if it was obtained while a woman was being trafficked or exploited. Yeah, and I am aware. I've actually spoken to um, to Richard as well. I'm aware of Project Recover. That's that is a fantastic initiative, it, and so it really badly is. needed. Yeah, yeah, that's. I wish that I had known about them. Well, probably about the time that probably coincides with the right about when I first read into that exact thing. So that's uh, it's super valuable work, though. And I find it's often just awareness, right? It's often you know, the, yeah. like I don't think that people at financial institutions want to think that that's how they're making their money. Right. Once well, somebody's aware. Sure. I mean, and that's that's one of the things about this whole topic, uh, the topic of exploitation and trafficking in general. It's you know, it's an uncomfortable conversation. Nobody wants to talk about this. Um, but unless we do, it's going to it's going to continue. Right. Um, and that's that's one of the things that I always try to impart upon people is that we often talk about the women that are involved um, and the survivors. But we're not we're tend to often miss the other half of the equation because without the men trafficking them or exploiting them, you know, the problem wouldn't exist either. So we have to have the conversations, not just amongst ourselves, but with our brothers and uncles and fathers and, and those, uh, those people as well. But yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a dinner table conversation that most people are willing to have. I mean, and for good reason, but it's something that still needs to be talked about. Yeah. Now that being said, I have found I've gotten more myself, just given my work at CES, I've gotten more comfortable talking about it. And you're right. Sometimes it's not good dinner table conversation, but I've, you know, I have had that dinner table conversation. And no, it's, yeah. Well, yeah, and it's about your audience too, right? I mean, yeah. there were a lot of the, those conversations at that at the CES event, right? Um, but if you go to if you go to your niece's high school graduation, you're probably not going to have the same conversation. <laughs> That's that's a fair point. That, yeah. that is so, something. Well, yeah. It's all about knowing your audience. Yes, hundred um, percent. So my next one. This one is tough. This is the one that I I don't know how to solve this problem, and um, and I don't. It, it's hard to say. You know, there's always two sides to every story. But at least the story I was told by the survivor here was that you know she's in a police car which has been stolen with her her trafficker driving the police car, and you know a lot. There's like romantic relationship or whatever or like she calls him her boyfriend but it's not really what it is right um and he uh, does a ton of damage with his police car hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage crashes the car they're sitting there the car's crashed he says like if i get arrested for this i'm going back to jail for a very long time and she switches seats with him and it's her sort of first serious offense so she gets a brief stint in jail but she ends up with, and this is in the Saskatchewan court system, she ends up with a $200,000 court fine. And you, mm. can't, you can't get rid of a court fine via bankruptcy or consumer proposal. Um, I don't know if Project Recover, like this is the one where I think, how is this ever going to get dealt with? Well, that's a tough one. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I've worked with a number of women who have taken the heat for their you know, boyfriends. Um, under similar circumstances, it might be a dope charge. It might be um, a gun charge. In, in this case, a massive property damage charge. Um, and I don't know anybody that's been able to get out from underneath those charges post conviction. Yeah, um, I, I don't know what you. You do. know what? Yeah. You know what? The courts are full of of case laws for the first time, right? So there has to be a first for all these cases and you know for for a good criminal lawyer that might be a, a good challenge for them um as i said most of the women that i've worked with that have taken charges we've been able to negotiate with the crown ahead of time based on their circumstance you know um and and talk about the psychological restraint that 
that, you know, he had over her, the power imbalance, all those sorts of things that led her to falsely um, take responsibility for his actions. But those are all pre-conviction. So post-conviction, I don't think it's impossible. I think you just need a really good lawyer willing, willing to fight the fight. That's, that's a good point. So if anybody out there knows a good criminal defense lawyer in Alberta and get them to reach out to me, that's... Uh, that, that wants to take it on pro bono, probably. Yeah, that's, that, in this case, that's what I mean by good. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the last one, you already touched on this. The, I see this a lot, the utility bills, right? Where yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the survivor has the Shaw account and the Epcor account and they, just everything in their name. And really, the the trafficker is going to you know run three or four months for free essentially because they they have no intention of paying those bills. Yeah, yeah, and and again, I think Project Recover can help with some of that. Um, I know some police services can help with that. I, I've written letters myself for women to to utility providers and cell phone companies and, and things of that nature, explaining the situation. You know, as long as there's a you know, a, a police case number that can be referenced that shows it's legitimate, and not just somebody, you know, printing it off for their Mac and handing it in sort of thing. Um, I think there's options there as well with, with the utility providers, as opposed to banks and other financial institutions um, who typically have larger losses uh, to deal with. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I've had the same success there where you sit down with that person, you help them craft a letter, send it off to the utility providers, legal counsel or whatever. And, and it does usually work, although it can take some effort, right? That's- yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and effort is efforts a good thing to touch on as well, too, because, you know, it's, it's important that when we're working with survivors that we get them to put in this put in the effort as well and, and not just rely on you or me or whoever it is that there is working with them to do all the, all the heavy lifting. Um, I always said that, uh, you know, I'll work with you to do whatever you want or need me to do if I can, but I'm not going to work harder than you. Right. Yeah. And, and it's that's a, yeah. It's a good point. And I, I always think too, there's a, and especially where I'm dealing where it's, you know, after the fact, uh, there's a Maslow's pyramid problem, right. Yeah. Where, a lot of times, like you're dealing with addictions issues, or you're, you know, mm-hmm. still emerging from the the prison system, or whatever it is, you know, my stupid financial stuff is like way, way, way detached from your immediate concerns. Yeah, right? yeah, That's, and you know, and I, you know, I often refer to, to Maslow in my presentations, and and it perfectly ties back into what we talked about at the very start about vulnerabilities and not being a socioeconomic matter. What it is, it's the basic human needs, Maslow's basic human needs, shelter, food, security, sense of family, um, those things. And if any of those are missing, whether you make, you know, minimum wage or whether or not you got a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, if any of those basic needs are missing, you're going to be vulnerable to be taken advantage of. And if you've got multiple basic needs missing, you're exponentially more vulnerable. Um, it, it, it's a great point. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah that that opens that uh, opens that door, right? Yeah. Um, now you touched on this already, um, and you sort of said you feel like probably the majority of the FinTrack stuff you saw came from some sort of big data efforts. Um, do you think we should be optimistic here? Do you think this is going to make it harder to be a human trafficker? Do you think the criminals are getting smarter? What's the, what's the, the prognosis here? Well, like I said, I, I think the information that FinTrack provides is really helpful to an investigation if the prosecution is going to go ahead. And that's, that, again, is the, the biggest challenge. Um, I, what FinTrack already provides, I think, is, is more than enough to satisfy um, what we would need to prove um, in a criminal prosecution, but the challenge is to get the survivor into court where we can introduce that evidence. Um, and, you know, it, it's much as much as I felt frustration in coming up with good evidence and forwarding off the CRA and having nothing done with it, I can only imagine that some of the FinTrack investigators feel the same way because they put all these really good packages together that that details all the transactions and stuff that, that connect the you know dots and 
and all those things, and then nothing happens with it. So I, I can empathize with them. But again, there are certain elements of that whole, that whole prosecutorial chain that, that you know, none of us are in, in control of. And that's whether or not the survivor wants to put herself out there and go and tell her story in front of, you know, judge and jury and, and whoever else may be in the courtroom. So almost everybody listening to this or watching this um, will be uh, subject to some um, rule from FinTrack. There's a set of guidelines for financial advisors, for insurance agents, for financial planners, for wealth managers. We we all have some rule. There's going to be hardly anybody listening who isn't going to have to report suspicious transactions you know, doesn't have an obligation to have at least a money laundering or an anti-money laundering policy. Um, do you think those things make a difference? Like, is is that actually helping to keep some of this activity at bay? Do you think that's some lip service? Do you have a, an opinion around that, Paul, that would be helpful here? My opinion is, yeah, it's helpful. Um, it's going to be helpful in every in, every single instance? Probably not. Um, but if it's helpful in, in one case, if it helps put one trafficker in prison, then I think then it's, it's worth all the work. Um, I, I don't think that the traffickers are sophisticated enough, um, at least at this point to start being a little more cautious in terms of what they do with their money and how they, how they move it from point A to point B. So I, I don't think that, I don't think there's any immediate risk of them outsmarting the system as it currently exists. Um, so I think the work can and should continue. And like I said, if it, if it helps in a successful prosecution in one time, that's going to lead to a second time. It's going to lead to a third time. And I think then once, once um, this type of evidence gets some traction, um, I, I think that ball will continue to gather momentum. My thought process around this is always that, you know, there are people out there with this kind of money. Like you talked before about people with, you know, multi hundred thousand dollar homes or, you know, maybe low seven figure homes sitting on cash. And, you know, you don't like that whole thing means that there is money moving through channels somewhere along the way. And, and to me, you know, being responsible about your anti-money laundering obligations, it just keeps, it's one level of access that's cut off right it's it's a place that we yeah yeah i i i think that it would be unusual today for somebody to try and bring their money to a financial advisor for you know money laundering in this scale although i I haven't seen the show myself but i know ozark is all about that Um, (laughs) you should see the show (laughs) yeah i actually i did watch the first episode and and i uh i i couldn't quite get into it so yeah i i've heard that though i've heard i should watch the rest maybe i will um but you know it's still i think it would be i would be shocked honestly and i think not because i'm naive i think i would be just shocked if if one of my students came to me and said you know jason i had this person come to me and i like it was pretty obvious there was something untoward going on it you know i called fintrack right yeah and i i I think I think the likelihood of a, of a individual sort of spotting something like that is probably fairly low. Um, probably by the very nature of the fact that not many people actually physically go into the bank anymore. It's all done electronically, right? And that's where that's where some of the programs that work behind the scenes that FinTrack has, I think, that tend to flag activity on multiple levels um, is probably probably going to be the way that we identify a lot of these transactions rather than a teller or a manager being really switched on. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Yeah. Um, And then any last comments about those uh, FinTracker AML obligations, anything that we didn't touch on there, Paul? I don't, I don't think so. Um, You know, we did talk about, you know, the lack of resources for, um, crown prosecutors for police officers for other investigators whether they're um, you know provincial investigators or banking investigators and things like that I, I think the only way that we're going to start making an, an impact like any area whether it's homicides or whether it's sex crimes or whether it's vice or you know auto theft um, is to dedicate some resources to 
creating and cultivating subject matter experts in the investigators. Um, because without the investigators, you're not going to get it to the crown. And without the crown, you're not going to get it to, to the courts. Right. So on the one hand, we got, there's just a, a break in the chain. We've got some really good financial investigators in FinTrack and in the banking systems, limited resources and, and limited expertise at the police, maybe better resources, but, um, and knowledge at the crown. And then, you know, the, the courts, I don't know what they're like at all, but I think there's a gap there in education and training. Um, and it's not probably because of lack of effort. It's probably a, um, a lack of human resources uh, because everybody is stretched thin. Uh, the Calgary Police Service is, is uh, um, under their authorized strength because we've got more people retiring than, than they're hiring right now. And that's just... You know, you can't just knit an investigator. It's going to take some time. So until we can start closing that gap and increasing some education and training uh, so we can create some people that, that have, at an investigative level, a really good grasp of financial crime, then I think we're going to struggle. Yeah, that's a good uh, message, I think. Paul, now, can we circle back? You were good enough to give us a little bit of a rundown of I win before. Um but I think I've got a few I win questions that I'd still like to um, to wrap up on here. So when you when you get this backpack, and I think you're not always there necessarily to see the the folks get their backpack. Do you think of it mostly? Is it is that like financial support? Is it emotional support? How do you think people perceive that? Well, it's financial support for the organization. Um, the contents of the backpacks. I mean, we we work very hard to try to source our backpacks and, and get our costs down. But it's the backpacks cost about $100 a piece by the time we, we get them assembled. You know, in 2021, we delivered 50 of those to Reset, for example. That's five grand off of a nonprofit's balance sheet that they can allocate elsewhere in the program. So that, that's good. Um, but for the women that receive it, it's, it's emotional and um, uh, psychological um, more than anything. Um, and emotional, probably above that. Um, you know, just talking to the women, it, you know, because I, I worked very closely with Reset for a while, but if I would take my Reset hat off and put my iWin hat on and speak with them and just talking about what it meant to them to, to get that, um, you know, it, it, would, it would bring tears to your eyes. You know, just the impact that somebody, a total stranger, because not only are there goods and stuff in inside the backpack each one is uh comes with a handwritten note um anonymous and a uh a bracelet um that not only the survivor can wear but there's a matching one out there by the person that stuffed the backpack so not only do they get some some things when they really need them with no strings attached, no charge, no fee, nothing asked from them, but they also get this handwritten note that tells them that somebody out there, a total stranger, um, is thinking about them and, you know, has, has done this for them for no, no other reason than they just want them to have some nice stuff. That's really great. I didn't know about the handwritten note. That's a nice touch, and I'm sure it... Uh, that's, that's our secret weapon. It adds to the impact in a lot of ways, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. It does, yeah. Yeah, we've got testimonials, um, um, and it's actually—I think some of the testimonials might be on the iWin website um, about the impact of receiving the backpack has had. Yeah, I did see some YouTube videos, so I'll uh, find something there and throw it into the uh, into the show notes. That's great. Um, and then, so sorry, I'm not—you're—you're uh, you're a nonprofit. You're not charity, are you, Paul? Do I have that right? No, we're a registered charity now. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it, nice. It took okay. a while, took a while yes. to get where status, yeah. but uh, yeah, we are a registered charity. So if somebody wants to donate, they you do this through uh, Canada Helps or how do you? Uh, through, I, I think through all of our social media, there's there's information on how to do it. So we've got a Facebook page, Instagram, um, Twitter. You know, I'm not all up on social media. I don't do that part of <laughs> it. I'm the I'm the uh, co-founder and the distribution guy, so we've got other folks that are way better versed in all the social media stuff. But we do I do I know we do have a Facebook page, um, Twitter, um, Instagram, so they can find it and all the information on how to how to donate, how to help out. In fact, what we've done because 
as I said earlier, we're very cautious and intentional about the things that we purchase and, and put in the backpacks. Um, I think we created a link to Amazon for specific items. So people can just get the Amazon link and they can be confident then that that item will make it to a backpack because we've had many items donated that simply weren't suitable. We've had to donate them elsewhere. Right. right. Yeah, I, I do agree with this. I, I, from my background in nonprofit, um, it's always better to get cash. But uh, yeah, yeah, cash is king. Yeah, yes, cash is king. Okay, well, that's amazing, Paul. I'd like to thank you very much for the work you're doing with IWIN and all that you did in your years on the the police force. Um, both, uh, you know, a great sort of follow on to great career that way. Uh, do you have any parting words for us? Final thoughts or words of advice? No, I, I think I've uh, I think I've exhausted what I what I hope to say on here. Um, I I do appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, as you, as you mentioned, um, I spent a, a good third of my policing career working with this population. It's, it's a population I'm still very passionate about and care very deeply for. Um, so any opportunity I can take to, to bring some awareness, I will absolutely take that opportunity. And again, I thank you for this opportunity. Um, and it's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. You've been a, a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Thanks so much and have a great day, Paul. Okay, bye now. So I like this because it shows the impact. I think you hear this in the interview, shows the impact of really paying attention on the anti-money laundering side. And I know Paul talks in here primarily about big data. I do make the point in the interview, and I think it's a valid point, that one of the things that we are confident of when we're working with insurance agents and financial planners and securities folks is that we have effective AML policies. So the the understanding here is that everybody listening to this episode has AML policies in place, and it really removes a significant avenue. And you hear Paul talk in the interview about real estate, for example, as a potential avenue for money laundering. And the real estate sector notably has been a little bit, um, let's say, slower to adopt some AML policies. You know, it hasn't been that long since you could buy a house with a bag full of cash and nobody would uh, notify uh, FinTrack about it. So you have some other sectors where this is less certain. So I know you say, well, nobody's ever going to come and try and launder you know, their uh, sex trafficking proceeds with me. But that's because they are aware that this is not really an available avenue. So I would say you continue to have a, an obligation here to have good AML policies in place, and really uh, to pay attention still for suspicious transactions. There's plenty of reasons to pay attention for suspicious transactions, such as elder abuse or undue influence, even if we're not thinking specifically about the kind of stuff Paul talks about in this uh, episode. That being said, I hope that what he goes over here does issue a helpful reminder that there are good reasons to have um, AML policies in place and good reasons for FinTrack to do the work that it does. The number for today's episode is six. The number for today's episode is six. I hope you'll join me again in uh, two weeks. We're going to get back to a, a more traditional type of interview, interview with a financial advisor with Ian, who's been on the show before. Um, but Ian actually brings an estate lawyer with him. This is kind of an interesting conversation about referrals and about uh delineating our own competencies and knowing when we're going to pass something over to the other professionals on the team. Um, really good uh, discussion here, a lot of discussion about information sharing. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for our discussion um, with Ian. And thanks so much for listening. Enjoy your continued studies. Thanks very much for joining us. You'll be able to do your quiz by creating an account and subscribing for $15 a month or $150 a year at businesscareercollege.com. Those who subscribe on an annual basis will also have access to three half-day continuing education seminars covering a variety of topics and capturing a range of different continuing education credit requirements. In order to get your credits for this episode, you'll have to do a short five-question quiz. 
you'll need the number that I went over just after the interview, the object that I displayed at the beginning of the interview, and you'll also have to recall a few details, nothing too challenging from the episode. Once you have completed the quiz, within the course where you did the quiz, you'll be able to click at the top right corner, and from there, you'll be able to choose the option to view wall certificate. That's how you'll see your CE credits. Hang on to that, although the system will hang on to it as well. I would like to acknowledge the efforts of a few people in getting this episode to air. Jocelyn Lord, Rennie Wong, and Sushami Pamela-Baquette are the amazing marketing team at We Know Training, which is Business Career College's parent company. Sush also does our video content. Joseph Tong composed the theme music and does the sound editing for every episode, as well as uploads the episodes to all audio platforms. Maria Nguyen takes care of all our CE approvals.